Song 313 has been announced, and we will certainly use that later in the service. As always, and certainly as Brother Lester mentioned a moment ago, we're thankful and honored for the presence of each and every individual here today. It is, in fact, a tremendous blessing that we've each been given to assemble in this way, and we trust and hope that our worship indeed will be truly that which the God of heaven would find acceptable and pleasing. Among those announcements that were mentioned earlier, let's certainly continue to think about the Bible Bowl as it is just a mere days now from us. In addition, those that have been announced as sick, uh, Sister Knight and that heart attack that, that she uh, certainly suffered, uh, even though that saddens us, perhaps as we continue to pray that things will be soon very much better for her. As we come to this part of our service this morning, as you'll notice in the bulletin as well as on the wall to my left, our lesson is entitled, A Happy, Rather a Healthy Home. I would invite you to think with me for the next few moments this morning about some of the features introduced in the following way. It is rather remarkable, isn't it, to comment and to think about home. Many a song has reminded us about home, maybe in fact at this very moment. There are thoughts that flood your mind as you recollect home when you were younger, when you were small, you remember being there with father and mother, or perhaps home has other memories that come to your mind. At any rate, it certainly would be hopeful that home is some place that does have at least some fond memories, a place in which a degree of respect and encouragement, a degree of nurturing was able to be found. For the next few moments, I would hope that you would go on a journey with me as we use the Word of God to encourage us in light of what would constitute a healthy home. I have every recognition that all of us hope that our homes are healthy. We hope that our homes are as they should be, and I would hope that for the next few minutes at least, we can use the Word of God to help us determine what constitutes a healthy home and how do we know if it's healthy or not. Health is something that is a rather notable blessing, isn't it? We know it when our body isn't healthy because we don't feel well or there's great disease or there are other problems or difficulties. Well, what might there be to help us see what constitutes a home that's healthy? The very last comment on that slide is this. In the very same way that work is required in order to keep the body healthy, I believe we shall discover that also work will be involved in ensuring that home is healthy. What is a healthy home? A number of items we shall list one by one, and as we look at them, the first one must begin here. It absolutely must start with this observation. First of all, what is the place of God in the home? If this one is missing, no matter what follows will not be to the degree it ought to be, and no matter what follows, it shall not occupy the necessary place that God would have it to occupy. God has to have His rightful place in the home. Let's begin by noting in the following fashion. It is not any surprise or shocking revelation to anybody. Anyone who's reached any degree of age understands that this life brings a whole host of problems. There are stresses and there are difficulties. There, in fact, are crises, it seems, that often occur almost one after the other. They may relate to hell, they may relate to things at the job site, they may relate to any number of other matters, but they challenge us, they weigh us down. 
The first thing that must be an uncompromising fact in the home is God's place in it. Notice with me some of these verses. In Matthew 6, verse 33, as Jesus addressed in that Sermon on the Mount, He, in fact, was describing a circumstance in which where is one's priority in life? Beginning in verse number 24 of that same chapter, He had, in fact, made note of the fact you can serve one of two masters, but not both. You can serve either God or mammon. No man can serve two masters. And in the verses that follow, the Lord described it in this way. What about the birds of the air and the lilies of the field and the other things that we see? Are they not arrayed and taken care of? Does God not provide for them? And then in verse 33, He said, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. There was an absolute promise from the God of heaven that these other matters would be provided to those who put their trust and confidence first and foremost in Him. It must start that way in the home as well. The father doesn't need to have as his top priority the job. Mother does not need to have as her top priority the pursuance of those matters that would be fleshly in character. Both need to make sure God is placed first. As you can well imagine, that has consequences for the other features and the other things in life. Notice what this reminds us about the nature of their union, first of all. What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. It was God that joined that man and woman. It was He that forged that marriage. It was He that solidified it in the, hall, in the halls of heaven. It was He that set that marriage forth as uniting it in fullness. Isn't it true in light of that? that they need to keep God first, not just on that day of their wedding vows, but on every subsequent day in their life. God needs to have His rightful position, doesn't He? He is, in fact, as described in the New Testament, was it Jesus called King of kings and Lord of lords, 1 Timothy 6.15? When we think of it in that way, we can see that there is thus forged a union described as one flesh. And in that description, we find that these two should thus be able to stand strong against all the fiery considerations that may come their way, for they are based upon one far stronger than they. You'll notice in verses like these, verses such as Colossians 3, verse 18, we find that as Paul addressed the husband and the wife, as he addressed each of them, they were given various charges. Charges that in fact were dwelled in the nature of how strong was their needfulness to always do the work of God. I'm reminded in that sense, what was it like for Adam and Eve prior to their sin in Genesis chapter 3? What was it like when day by day they walked in the garden in the full presence and in the greatness of the blessing of God, unencumbered with any sin? What must that have been like? Some have called that a veritable paradise on earth, and I suspect that's a fair description. Think of what it was like with no jealousy, no envy, no sin, no ugliness, no evil of any kind of variety. It was just they, in the greatness of God's creation, enjoying all of His blessings. That must have been a phenomenal consideration. 
We understand, though, that the nearest we can come to that state now is the understanding of being forgiven of sin, the character of living our life in full harmony with the teaching of God, and being able to share that with others. Isn't that as close as we can now come? Looking forward to that marvelous day when through all eternity we can share it in its fullness then. Adam and Eve, what they enjoyed on that occasion, challenges us to think about God's place in this home. When it comes to fathers, didn't God especially tell them, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Notice that in the home of the Lord is a description. Fathers, you need to make sure that you lift high the banner of God's Word. Don't provoke your children to wrath. Don't incite them to behavior that in fact would lead them to moving aside from God's ways. It is a fascinating thing then to recognize, what about the place of God in the home? Does He have the place that He should? If He doesn't, that home is not healthy. From outward appearances, all may appear to be well, but it is not as fully mature and healthy as it should be. But that only begins us in the following way, because what might come next? In addition to that particular place of God, what about the place of commitment? There is a recognition involving commitment that cannot be overstated. It certainly is easy to be seen, and quite often we see its absence. Isn't it true? And it has ever been so. But we understand that there are various stresses and temptations that come before the members of a family. Those temptations at times can be strong. We often see it on the news and we see it in other places. Might I ask us to appreciate that with the difficulties of life and with the opportunities that go with our careers, if a husband and wife aren't careful, they can grow apart. Perhaps at first, when they were first married, there was such a degree of eagerness such a degree of strength that they appreciated one toward the other. However, as his job grew and as he was involved in more promotions there and the same with her, they spend less and less time with each other, more and more time apart. And if they aren't committed to one another, singularly, solely, and completely, the time may come that her eye turns to another, his eye turns to another, and soon... Difficulty beyond measure has taken place. They must be committed to each other. No matter what the difficulties that this life may bring, no matter what fiery messes the devil can throw, they have to be committed to each other because God united them that way. That degree of commitment might well be highlighted in language like this. I stated it as if some have chosen to compromise it. It can never be compromised. I mentioned a moment ago about that phrase, one flesh. That's used three times in the sacred text of the Bible. The first is in Genesis, the second chapter. You might revisit that incredible scene with me. When on that occasion, of all the things that God has made, it was not good that Adam was alone. Genesis 2.18 Two verses later, God set about to remedy that problem. How did He do so? He caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. 
And from his side he removed that rib, and with that rib he fashioned a woman, the final act of God's creation. And in the fashioning of that woman, verses 23 and 24 describe it like this. God brought her to the man, brought her to Adam, and Adam then replied, She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then God said, Therefore, let a man, or shall a man, leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. It was God then that said one flesh was what was forged and formed that day. And today, still despite what difficulties life may bring, that one flesh must be honored. It must be understood as special and it must be understood as a commitment. Till death do us part, a lifelong commitment that they are thus to appreciate, to love, to cherish, and to respect each other. As you can see in that, we know that in practicality, there will be occasions when there's hard moments, disagreements. There are times when maybe we might even call it a fuss arises. Never must that be allowed to go far enough to sever that commitment. After all, whatever has been said, whatever has been done, that can be smoothed over, forgiven, and worked out. It must never be allowed to reach the point where we notice that relationship is severed. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your anger. Paul's famous words of Ephesians 4.26. When those moments of anger come, may we with patience understand that they're short-lived, they're temporary, and we should let them pass. As we think about that particular nature of allowing them to pass, doesn't it point us in this direction? That very text that was read earlier. I think that there's much to be said about the application of that First Peter 4 verse 8. When that was read earlier, we noticed the strength and the fortitude to be found in it. How does that particular passage read? We notice it highlights charity. It highlights love. And doesn't it then say that love shall cover a multitude of sins? It is true, isn't it, that when that man and woman love each other, they have a foundation on which they are able to approach and as well as to overcome whatever may come their way. When you think about the nature of that love with me and the character that's to be seen in it, I think it leads us to this very last statement. Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing. God did use that word good in relation to that marriage that's formed. And might we be quick to say that it's not just the wife that's good, but it's that union that has been made by the greatness of God's fortitude. May we never forget the quality of our marriages and strive to make in them what God would have them to be that which is truly and honorably good. In addition to this matter of commitment, what else would make a healthy home? Certainly if God is absent, it isn't going to be as healthy as it should be. If commitment is not there, it will not be as healthy as it ought to be. But beyond this, what about communication? It has often been noted, and perhaps it's worth saying again, God gave us two ears but one mouth. And in that light, maybe we should be more quick to listen than we should be to speak.
How often do you and I talk and get ourselves into trouble? We speak too quickly without all the information and without all the facts of the case, and we soon find after speaking that we regret what we have said. We said it without understanding. We said it far too quickly. We said it perhaps in temper, in the heat of the moment, and our communication was thus less than what it should be. I would invite you to think with me about communication, at least in that regard. One of the things that those that do studies on this point tell us, one of the things that leads to the greatest difficulty in marriage is the lack of communication. When the husband and wife just don't talk to each other in the intimacy and in the fullness that they should. They should be the best of friends and they should communicate with each other and they should share life. They've been joined by God to be not only companions, but of course to understand that they can assist and help each other in those ways through life. In regard to that communication, might you see with me that in Proverbs 15.1, we have a principle set forth. A soft answer turneth away wrath, but a grievous answer stirreth up anger. We should have a desire, of course, to respond with softness, to respond with tactfulness, with understanding, with appreciation that this one with whom we're wedded is a very special person and one whom we love. It should not be our desire to insult them, to demean them, to belittle them. And yet, if we do that, how sorrowful it makes us feel, hopefully later. Isn't it amazing in light of all of that that the Proverbs writer has a number of things to say. In Proverbs 2 verse 11, we are admonished to in fact strive to always speak with understanding. Are we guilty sometimes of failing in that, in that line? Maybe we fail to speak with understanding, but rather we speak in such a way to confuse the matter. None of us are perfect, I suppose, in that regard, but perhaps this should be our goal. You'll notice in another one of those verses, in Proverbs 18, verses 2, as well as verse 13, we notice the impressiveness and the command to answer a matter only after we understand that which is being said. Sometimes are you and I too quick to answer? Even before we understand all that has been said, and even before we fully appreciate the consequences of previous issues, we're too fast to speak. And as such, we again speak incorrectly, and we speak with failure. Communication is so very needful. Proverbs 26, 4 highlights for us, again, the need to always have the desire for understanding in that regard. It may be at this point we can say this. In that home, if there is at that degree of communication, unhealthiness will, of course, necessarily reign supreme. And that unhealthiness will be a failure to appreciate where are we going. The husband and wife need to share, and they need to communicate well. When we think about the usage of our language in that, in that way, do we make times for speaking? I suppose there was a time when at the supper table, at the various meals of the day, a family often would all be together and they could talk. That day is not nearly as common as it once was. 
Now we often go our way. We're eating in the car. We're eating on the way to this place or that one. We're eating at restaurants. But may we never again lose sight of making some time to talk and to communicate and to share, even if it's by phone, even if it's in the concourse of other ways, because it's too important. Beyond communication, notice the degree of both honor and respect. We noted this earlier, but it's well to observe it again. In the home, there should be, there must be, a healthy respect for each other. The husband should not look down upon the wife and treat her as a second-rate person, but by the same token, the wife must not treat the husband that way either. They each have been given very special and honor-filled roles by the God of heaven, and in that way, some of these verses come to light. I might point out these are commandments. They are not suggestions. Husbands are told to honor their wives and to look upon them and treat them with all the respect that would be directed to the weaker vessel. 1 Peter 3 verse 7. Husbands, that means as the leader of the family, as the head of that family, the head of the wife, Ephesians 5.22, we must look upon her and desire that things would lead to her being in heaven. Every decision that we make... Everything of which we lead in direction of that family should be for her eternal well-being. We must respect and love her to that degree. You'll notice that we're told, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. What greater love could there be than that? You notice that this degree of respect is also directed the other way. In Ephesians 5, verses 31, 32, and 33, we find there that the husband and the wife are sufficiently joined and bound and the wife is told that she is to reverence, to greatly respect her husband. We might ask in terms of that character, do both parties then respect and honor each other? It is in that light I would ask you to notice. Surely then, a loving husband or a loving wife would never use information of a personal nature to humiliate the other. And yet, doesn't that happen from time to time today? We see a husband, as he tells a joke, using his wife as an example. He may intend that to be funny. There seems no humor in it to me. She is not to be looked upon and belittled, even if it's of a personal character in trying to make light of a moment. He should respect and honor her to the degree and to the point that something like that would not take place. And similarly, it must work the other way as well. Marriage is not a joking matter. There are things in marriage that might be funny on occasion. And all of us have a good laugh on the basis of something. But personal matters like that ought not be used publicly to demean the nature of the husband or the wife. It is for those reasons. The very bottom says that that love for each other should be the predominating feature and that lovely factor. Husbands are to love their wives, and wives are to love their husbands. Do we see that love in the things that so often are common in life around us? Sometimes we do not. Sometimes we see individuals who not only seem not to love one another, but there almost seems a disinterest. There almost seems a degree of hatefulness. 
There almost seems a degree in which we can appreciate so far removed from the nature of what a marriage ought to be. Maybe all that brings us to forgiveness. The fifth point of the lesson is this one. In forgiveness, isn't it also very easy to see? There are times when I'm sorry is the proper answer. There are times when a husband or wife, because of what has been said, maybe in light of what has been done, there's the need to say, I'm sorry, would you forgive me for that? I ought not to have said that. I should not have done that. Forgiveness is so often spoken of in the Bible, isn't it? It appears in the Old Testament as something, of course, that will be finally fulfilled and brought to bear at some day when Christ would come. But then, Christ did come. And He set before us the pure teaching of what will lead to forgiveness. Not only is forgiveness something that we often need in terms of baptism or in terms of coming forward to ask for prayers of brethren, but in the privacy of a home, there are times when there's only two that know about what has been said and then the husband or the wife needs to beg the forgiveness of the other. That forgiveness, of course, is highlighted in some of the ways that you see on this slide. There is a remarkable principle in the New Testament. That principle perhaps seen no better than in Ephesians 4.32. As Paul addressed that church in Ephesus, telling them, Notice how this applies to a marriage. Be ye kind one to another. Tender. Notice he says, Tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Isn't it interesting how that there can be such a sense of hollowness, a sense of void, a sense of loss when things are not full and complete and yet how sweet it is when all you have to do is to say, I'm sorry and to beseech the forgiveness of that husband or wife, and then what formerly was a division, what formerly was a separation, what formerly was being apart is suddenly all made right. Forgiveness is such a sweet thing. That sweetness needs to be often recognized in a family. If it isn't, it just isn't as healthy as it ought to be. Isn't it sad then when something initially takes place, and it could have been forgiven so easily. It could have been left in the matters of history. But the two allow it to fester because they're too prideful to say, I'm sorry. They're too arrogant and too unwilling to admit a mistake. And so what there is just allowed to remain just beneath the surface, ready to mention it again on a moment's notice and say, well, do you remember this? Do you recall that? I told you so. And all the while, all the heartaches and all the hardships that could so easily have been left behind, are used to rake time and again over the head of another. Such things simply are not healthy. After all, when God discusses forgiveness, how does He present it? When He forgives us, it's complete, isn't it? He doesn't remember it. He doesn't hold it over our head again and beat us over with it. He forgives and therefore forgets. We know that our ability to remember isn't as perfect as God's, and we remember. But we ought not use it time and again to insult and hurt the one we love. This means of forgiveness perhaps closes with those last thoughts. 
I mentioned pride a moment ago, and it would seem that that would surely be one critical thing that would keep us from forgiving. Pride is such a dangerous matter. Pride goeth before a fall, Proverbs 16, 18 tells us. When we are too prideful to forgive another, when we're too prideful to ask another to forgive us, that means things are not well. We need to be humbled and we need to be brought to recognize the status that God would have us occupy. And it ought not be a status in which we're unwilling to forgive or we're unwilling to ask another to forgive us. In Matthew 18, Jesus taught about that scenario in which if one asks for our forgiveness, even if it be until 70 times 7, we need to be ready and willing to do it. Forgiveness is not something we should ration. When another meets the conditions of forgiveness, we should be anxious and eager to forgive. And that includes members of our family. For those reasons, what does that bring us to in the last element of the lesson this morning? Aside from forgiveness, notice the issue of togetherness. It's a special thing to appreciate a family that's together. When they can enjoy each other's company, when they can appreciate the special role that each occupies, and when based on that strength they can be a marvelous example to others. That kind of consideration points us to simple togetherness. I've asked you to think about Ephesians 5.29 with me. There, as Jesus taught, or rather, as Paul taught about loving one's neighbor, he couched it in language like this, For no man ever failed to nourish and cherish his own body. We tend to take care of ourselves, don't we? Notice Paul there said we need to do the same to the members of our family, to our wife, to our husband. Do we cherish and nurture them as we should? We can't do that properly unless there's some togetherness. Togetherness. I define for you that word nurture, that word nourish. It means to nourish up to a degree of maturity. We should desire our families to be mature because if they aren't, that's when problems could occur in times in the future. When particular onslaughts happen, the devil makes attacks to us and we aren't mature enough to handle it. Our children might make the wrong decision. Our husbands may make the wrong decision. Our wives might make the wrong decision. But when there's maturity, there is a strong and mighty fortress that is in fact very powerful. And it'll be able to withstand whatever comes against it. Sometimes we see that element of togetherness highlighted in a number of ways, both Old and New Testament. In the Old Testament, those families, of course, often literally dwelled together, even up to two or three generations. Genesis 18, 19 seems to indicate that very point. We notice today we don't live together in the same way then in terms of physical dwelling places. However, in spirit, can we not be together? When those children and those parents, they are there for each other, for encouragement, for his support, for strength. And they're there in such a way that they know that there's others on whom they can lean to provide counsel or even advice when that's needed in life. The Word of God encourages that. And as we think about that near the close of this lesson, we may summarize it in the following ways. I've tried to do so like this. A healthy home is very important. We should desire it. 
We should yearn for it for our children so that as they grow up, they can know how to provide for themselves a healthy home. But that healthiness is seen today in ways like this. The questions are very evident, aren't they? Is my home a healthy one? Is your home a healthy one? If it's not, there are things we can do to move it in that direction. Those things surely include these. First, what is God's place in that home? Secondly, what about the matters of commitment and communication? Do they occupy the role that they should? Do you respect and honor the other members of the family as you should? In the final analysis, when needed, what about forgiveness? Are we too prideful to ask someone to forgive us? Are we too prideful to say, I'm sorry? We ought not be that way. And when others ask us that way, are we too prideful to forgive them? That's a bad thing on our part if that's how we feel. What about togetherness? All of these help us see that God has many things to say about a healthy family, a healthy home. If yours isn't as healthy as you'd like it to be today, begin working on it. Make the changes as needed. Beg the God of heaven for help. But might we say, if you aren't a Christian, the most fundamental thing needed, you do not have. You don't have the strength of God at your side. You do not have the character of the blessed forgiveness from the blood of Jesus to assist and help you. Today, why not make that right? If you're not a Christian, have never been one, why not fix that lacking matter today? Jesus gave you this plan of salvation. You need to hear the word that God has set forth. Believe Jesus with all your heart to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Come before Him in openness of confession. And then, as you do all of that, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. If we could assist you in that way today, why not today? If you have become a member of the body of Christ and perhaps at one time began the walkway with Him in as powerful a fashion as imaginable, but over time you have allowed distractions, other forces to intervene between you and a right relationship with Him, and at this moment, partly because of you, your family, your home is not healthy. One or more of these things are lacking. Fix them today, but if you need to come forward and ask for public prayer on your behalf, this would be the perfect opportunity. If we could be of assistance to you today in either of these ways, we'd be honored to help. A song of encouragement has been selected, and if we could help you at this moment, why not do so while together we stand and while we sing?